behalf. And all this is done so that we can experience the love of God uh, for both God and others that he experiences in oneness with the Father and thus bring glory to him. So it's a circular relationship. God sent Jesus to redeem us so that Jesus might send us to redeem others through the message about Jesus uh, that we that we all are entrusted with. And so, to put it real simply, God saved us through the gospel that we might bring him glory through, through the gospel. And bringing God glory has both a horizontal dimension of our relationships with one another and a vertical dimension of our relationship with God. And, and that's um, something that Paul is careful to explain about how we bring glory to God through the gospel in all these aspects of our lives. If that's if that is if you want to know what First Corinthians is about, that's what it's about. It's about how do we bring glory to God in every aspect of our life? How do we submit ourselves uh, to Jesus through the gospel and its power being at work in our lives? So, if you've got your Bible open, uh, look at. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. We'll read down through verse 30. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Now, just to be sure everybody experiences a blinding flash of the obvious, this is the portion of the text that is devoted to the horizontal relationship. This is the one that, this part of the text here, that deals with your relationships with your fellow homo sapiens. And it's been a couple weeks since I was up here, so let me just back up. Uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians are all devoted to this issue of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And Paul gives some pretty explicit instruction that you're not to eat in any of the idol temples, although that was commonly done. Uh, among the people of Corinth, that was one of the places where they had uh, gatherings and, and you know, festive celebrations of various things. But as a believer, Paul says, no, you're to be distinct. You're to set yourself apart from the culture in which, you, in which you live. You are not to be just like everybody else, and you for darn sure are not to engage in anything which is in any way connected with idolatry. Because if you engage in eating in these idol feasts, then you are undermining both your testimony for the gospel as well as making yourself out to be a hypocrite in the eyes of everybody who knows you. 
And so Paul is giving here in this section some real practical instruction as to, okay, well, Paul, what can I do? Uh, how, do how, how careful should I be about what I eat? Uh, how should I interact with, with people, or be members of my family, let's say, or business associates or so forth, that I'd be invited into their home and they're going to put food in front of me do I ask where the source is? Do I not worry about it? What do I do? So Paul is attempting here in this section to give a, a spirit-inspired answer to these kinds of questions. And it begins with Paul's quotation of one of the things that the Corinthians have been giving him as justification for all that they are doing. You'll notice that in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes the Corinthians back to them several times. And one of the things that they say is, as a reason that justifies why they should be allowed to eat in the idol temples is, well, Paul, you know, the law, the Mosaic law has been abolished and therefore all things are lawful for me. In other words, Paul, now that we don't have to obey the law anymore, I can do whatever I want, is their thinking says, look, there's some qualifiers here. If you have the, the NIV and your Bible, it may read permissible. All things are permissible to me. Uh, same idea. And based on, um, based on this, Paul is going to give a response. And he says, look here, not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. In other words, there's more to consider here than just am I within the law? Can I point to a specific verse in Scripture that says, don't do this? Well, no. At the same time, Paul is saying, look, just because I can't point to a specific verse in Scripture that says, don't do this, doesn't mean I am therefore allowed to do whatever I want. That you need to consider the needs of the other person and, and to seek their good and their benefit, not just your own. In other words... You know, your desires are not primary. You've got to look at not just your needs and your interests and your desires, but also what would be best for other people that you're in relationship with. So, um, so the, the fact is, is that... Um, what they really want to do here is that they want to have their actions be guided basically on, as long as it's not prohibited, it's okay. And, you know, I think, I think we need to bear in mind, as Paul is saying to them, that just because there's nothing explicitly prohibiting, that's kind of the bare minimum uh, there should be that should be the case for everything that we do, right? That there's nothing explicitly prohibiting this in Scripture, uh, and that's and that's the minimum. But but the next line here is more difficult because it's it's I think the distillation of what Paul labels elsewhere the law of Christ. If you look at verse 24, there, let no one seek his own good, but also the good. Of his neighbor. 
In other words, yes, it's true that we're not under the law, but you need to fulfill the law of Christ as it relates to other people in not just looking out for your own needs, but also for others. And that's basic, right? That's what every parent tries to teach their, teach their children or their child. That, look, you not, need to not just consider yourself, but also other people. And if you're going to have, if you're going to have a, a good marriage, you're going to have a good friendship, a good business, or even a good country, you've got to be willing to sacrifice at times some of your own desires and your own needs for the good of other people. Amen? And that's certainly the attitude that should characterize Christians, right? And so all this, is, all this instruction is given because Paul is concerned about the potential effects on the gospel and the witness that the people give, not to mention the danger that he's already highlighted earlier in chapter 10 of Christians being reseduced by the attractiveness of idolatry. Because idolatry is attractive. It was appealing. You know, you could engage in whatever kind of uh, festival type stuff you could, you could be involved in. Uh, you could go down to the temple of Aphrodite and engage in immorality with one of the sacred prostitutes there. And it was not immoral. It was holy. It was worship. Idolatry had certain attractions that were undeniable. And Paul is concerned not just that they not get sucked back into that, but also that they be able to stand outside of it in, a, in an unhypocritical fashion and call other people out of it with the gospel message. He says, look here, you've got to be careful. So here's, what the, here's the practical instruction that they have to do. Uh, meat was... Meat was from the idol temples was pervasive. It was available in the marketplace everywhere. It was cheap. And um, it's not even always possible. A lot of times if you buy in the marketplace, to even tell where it came from. And so the question Paul is answering is, how careful do we have to be here? Uh, I get not going to the temple, but what about meeting the marketplace? What about meeting a non-Christian's home? Do I give deliberate offense? By asking questions, or do I just boycott meat entirely? What do I do? And Paul says this. If you look at the text here, he says, he says, eat meat sold in the marketplace without raising any question. In other words, if it's available for sale, you can buy it, you can eat it. Not a problem. Secondly, if an unbeliever asks you to their home and you want to go, then go. And while you're there, don't feel like you have to investigate the source of what you're eating because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, you know, I'm sitting in an unbeliever's home and he puts a big steak in front of me. I don't have to say, so did this come from the idol temple? Where did this come from exactly? You don't have to do that. You don't have to be offensive to your host. But, number three, if somebody gives, you, gives religious value to the meat that you're eating by saying explicitly, this was given to an idol, then you can't eat it. Why? Well, so that you would then have the opportunity to witness 
through your faith. So that you then would have the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, you've been a very gracious host, and I know that you worship, say, Aphrodite or Ares or Athena or whoever, but I can't eat that because it was offered to that god or goddess, and I'm a Christian, and I can't participate in that which belongs to any other god than the one I worship. And the idea is, is that therein is an opportunity for the gospel. If you eat in those circumstances, you compromise your confession of belief in the one true God. And you also confirm rather than challenge that unbeliever's convictions by endorsing idolatry. And that makes your rejection of pagan gods seem hypocritical rather than genuine. And if you look at the text here, you might find uh, verse 29 and verse 30 a little bit confusing. But as best I can discern, this is Paul's parenthetical aside saying, look, you're not condemned if you eat food over which you've given thanks as long as no one has previously announced it to be sacrificed to an idol. There's nothing unclean or sinful about it. Just food. On the other hand, it becomes sinful to eat it when someone announces their intent to include you in the worship of a pagan god. Now, in just a second, we'll get into how this relates to modern type situations. Uh, I doubt that any of you has been invited to a meal at an idol's temple lately or had anybody say to you, hey, I offered this steak to Buddha or whoever. Uh, but if that comes up, you'll be well prepared for that. But I think this also has some, some contemporary relevance that I want to show you here in a minute. Are you with me so far? Okay, you can, as long as nobody raises an issue and attaches religious significance to it, eat what you want and fellowship with those whom you want, but not at the temple because that's endorsing idolatry. Uh He's got more here, so let's take a look at it. Verse 31 of chapter 10 down to chapter 11, verse 1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now, in that section, there are three awesome commands. Uh, number one is our new pastor, Stephen's life verse. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. And in other words, every activity, every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude is to be done with God's glory in mind. Life is not about me. It's not about you either. You need, to, you need to understand that it's about God, that He does not exist for me, I exist for Him. He did not save me merely for my own good, although He did save me to do me good. But He didn't simply save me for that reason, He saved me in order that I might bring glory to Him. And therefore, you have to filter and screen everything in your life through the grid of will this bring glory to God or not? 
How many of you know what cheesecloth is? Right? What do you do with cheesecloth? You filter stuff out, right? You get rid of all the floaties in whatever you might be drinking, right? Um, and you filter things out that, you, that shouldn't be there. And this statement is Paul's summation of this whole thing, that it's not just about, is this okay? Is this legally permissible? Is this, is this all right or is this not all right? It's not that simple. There's a higher standard at work, and it's, does this bring glory to God in what I'm doing? And it's an excellent filter for all kinds of things, right? I've read my Bible, and, and I realize that, you know what? The TV is not mentioned in there, right? Movies are not in there. Um, concerts aren't really mentioned in there. You know, and yet, my entertainment choices need to be filtered through the grid of, does this bring glory to God, right? The way that I deal with people needs to be filtered through the grid of, does this bring glory to God? Because the whole deal is, is that our entire life is to be an act of worship before God that we glorify God in all that we do and say and think. That everything in our life is lived out before God and is meant to bring honor and glory to Him. And that filters out a lot of other stuff. Second command here is not to seek your own advantage, but that of other people, that they might be saved. A whole lot of us struggle with just basic selfishness. That the only thoughts that we have many times center around ourselves and we have trouble seeing outside ourselves to how our actions affect other people. And we have trouble seeing the impact on the gospel of the way that we behave around one another. And... Paul says, so I give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church, and I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. The whole idea is, is that Paul says, I live my life in consideration of others as to what will best advance the gospel with the people I interact with. And Jesus said that we would be salt and light. Amen? And Paul is telling us the same thing. He says, on the one hand, you need to draw some lines in your life between the way that pagans behave and the way that you behave. So that there is a sharp contrast between your life and that of the average pagan person who doesn't know Jesus. One of the things that distresses me, by the way, a great deal about the modern American church is that when you do surveys and studies, on the behavior of the average evangelical Christian and the average pagan, that they are indistinguishable in many categories, and in some cases, evangelicals are worse. That ought not be. Amen, brothers and sisters? That we ought to be the people, who, since we possess the gospel, which empowers us by the Spirit, 
that we ought to live lives that are distinct and not just not just different. You know, God does not call us to be weird. Okay? He calls us to be distinct. We're not to be simply odd. We're to be distinct and morally better than everybody around us. That we give a clear testimony of the power of the gospel lived out in our lives. Because the idea is, is that our lives would be attractive, that they would possess a real power to them. As people look at us, they would, they would say, I am not a Christian, but if I ever became one, I would want to be like that guy or like that woman. Because look at how they live their life. And your life then becomes a testimony and a, a way of sharing Christ even before you open your mouth to explicitly share the gospel. People recognize that something is quite different about you and about me. If you're trying to reach your Orthodox Jewish friend, don't invite him over for baby back ribs and chitlins, right? Why? Because the goal is getting them the gospel. And the gospel is by itself offensive enough. So we don't want to offend people. But on the other hand, you need to... You need to live distinctly from everybody else. You ought not blend in to such a degree that there's no difference. And you seem to be endorsing sin and evil with your life. Because in either case, you lose an opportunity for the gospel. And our goal should be to share it with everybody we know. And the last command that Paul gives us in this passage here is imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the idea is, look at my life and consider how I have testified with my life for Christ and I've never compromised on matters of right and wrong, but I'm willing to flex where it comes to cultural practices that don't matter if flexibility results in an increased hearing of the gospel. I don't know how many of you can say to someone, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But that ought to be a goal. That all of us would live such spirit-filled, God-honoring, God-glorifying lives that we could say to people who are newer Christians or people who are non-Christians, this is what a Christian life looks like. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, look at me. Follow after me. Do what I do. And you'll be able to walk with the Lord. Now, that's a pretty stern challenge. You know, Paul is a tremendously humble man, but nevertheless, he is able to write. If you want to know how to do this well, watch me. Do what I do. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, and I think it becomes challenging to apply this text. You know, we're not yet in a situation as culture where we're going to be asked to participate in idolatry like the Corinthians, but we are in a culture where it's very easy to give unnecessary offense and also equally easy to compromise truth for the sake of fitting in. Amen? So, how should we then live? This is, this is my, my response to that question. How do you live 
with the principles that are here in this text. Number one, you need to look out for other people, not just yourself. Because the objective is to advance the gospel with lost people, not to turn them off before you get a hearing. Amen? And I believe that the single biggest cause of rejection of the gospel in our culture is that people who believe it are not starkly different enough. There is power in our witness, even before we open our mouth to share. There is power in the witness of our life if we will live empowered by the Spirit in obedience to the word that God gave. But to the extent we're to the extent that we're not different, we're seen to be hypocrites. And so you need to look out for other people, not just yourself. And in looking out for them, be aware that the world is watching. And they are, as, as the, poem, the old poem goes, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. People read what we write, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to you? fact is, is that people read your life. And what comes out of you in terms of how you behave is, is different than what comes out of your mouth. They won't believe what you have to say. It won't ring true. And so consider them as well as yourself and the opportunities for the gospel that are involved. Let me ask a real practical question here. What about boycotts? I think this passage has something to say about that. Uh, one of the things I am trying to wrestle through is, just on a personal level, I have been involved in the Boy Scouts uh, with my sons for the last several years. And here recently, as many of you know, there's been a change in policy regarding who is eligible to be a member and a lot of discussion as to whether uh, lifestyle choices you might make would, would be in accordance with the morally straight provision of the scout oath. And I've had to think about it and, I, and, and, and realize how this comes down. And I think it's, it gets very simple and very clear if you follow the instructions here in the passage. And I think it basically boils down to this. If somebody draws attention to something that is antithetical to your faith, you can't participate can't participate because somebody is explicitly underlining that and saying this is what we're going to promote and this is what we're going to be about and we're and then to participate in that is to endorse that position and so I will not be participating come fall I need to communicate that with those folks but here's the but the other side of that is this that if you don't know where somebody stands on a particular issue you don't have to wear yourself out investigating everything that you do at some point um you're able to participate in what you want with freedom you know? so as an example I don't know what Walmart's 
position on all kinds of stuff is, and I've not investigated, and I don't think it's my obligation to. I just go and buy groceries. Right? But if Walmart were to make an issue of something in a public way, then I, as a Christian, need to find somewhere else to shop. You understand what I'm saying? This is where that passage starts to have some real contemporary relevance. Because otherwise, you wind up participating in that which God condemns. Third thing, glorify God with your life. And this will be an evaluation question you can ask yourself. Is what I am doing something I can glorify God for or not? If it's not, then you probably ought not be doing it. Is what I am doing something I can praise God for? And if not, I probably ought not be doing it. Because if we are God's people, and we are, then, we ought, then He ought to be glorified in everything we do and say and think. And if we can't glorify God in what we have done or said or thought at a particular moment, then we need to change. We need to repent of that and make adjustments going forward. Last point. Follow good models. People are flawed, absolutely. Uh, But the best of the church's people give us some good models to follow for living the Christian life that is winsome at the same time it stands against evil and sin. And part of discipleship, I think, of growing in your Christian life means following a model. Finding somebody who's a more mature believer, you know, an older man, an older woman. Uh, Maybe even reading, you know, as I like to do from time to time, reading some dead pastors as well as listening to living ones, right? Guys like Spurgeon or, or John Calvin or John Owen or John Edwards or one of these guys. Um, but find somebody who can be a model to you. Uh, attach yourself to a Christian leader who does these things well and follow their example Read your Bible and model yourself after the author and finisher of the faith, Jesus. But part of the Christian life is being able to imitate Christ as you see him live in people's lives. When we, because we are in Christ, according to the scriptures, Jesus' life actually lives in us. And the process of growing up as a Christian is the process of allowing Jesus to have more and more of your life that you turn over to him and allow his life to be lived out through you. But we need sometimes examples with skin on that we can see, that we can ask a question and get an answer. So find a good model. Find somebody you can be with you know, have coffee with, talk to, and say, what do I do here? How do I, how do I think through this issue or that one? Or what would be a good way of 
reaching my neighbor with the gospel or my family or somebody at work. Help me think through how I might glorify God with this part of my life. All right, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, my body is weak and my voice is weak. And I'm not sure my mind is all together here this morning. Father, I, I am so glad that the proclamation of your word depends not on my ability to explain it, but on the Holy Spirit who gave it and who makes it come alive in the ears and hearts of those who listen, not because of my words, but because of yours. Father, I do pray that your word would powerfully work in all of our hearts, that as it is proclaimed, that, Father, you would reveal this treasure that you have hidden in earthen vessels to be worth more than all the treasures of the world. Father, help us to glorify you. Help us to give you honor, not because we think we should, but simply because we must, because you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise simply because of who you are. Father, may you live your life out through, uh, through us by your Spirit's power. May we glorify you in all of our ways and all that we say and do and think. May you be honored. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.